This podcast contains strong language and is intended for mature audiences. It is for entertainment purposes only. Some kids are great at putting on an act as if they're okay and things are going fine with school and friends. But caregivers know this isn't always the case with quiet and sensitive kids who tend to go inward rather than outward with their feelings. You know those kids, those who may isolate, who only come live online, maybe they struggle with an eating disorder, or self-harm, gender sexual identity issues, or maybe they're battling unprocessed big T or little t trauma. So in this episode, Wendy and I talked to Jeremy Manet, founder of Pacific Teen Treatment in Malibu, about how to identify and support young people facing contemporary teen issues today. Relationships and connections play a big role in it, so let's do this. Ready? I'm ready. Yes. <laughs> you looking at your calendar? Uh, I was offered a dentist appointment tomorrow at nine, and I didn't know if I could do it, so I needed to type Y if yes. Okay. Um, but oh yeah, I, I hate to that. see if I have a okay. opening, and I do. All right. So, welcome back, podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning in to the Relationship Show with Dr. Wendy and Miss Jenny. We're two LA-based psychotherapists hoping to help you improve the quality of your relationships to just about everything and everyone. I'm Jenny Chafee Wilson, a.k.a. Miss Jenny, as always with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Wendy O'Connor. And hello. today... You want to say hello? Hi. Hi. How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> How you doing, Jeremy? Hey there. Hey. And today we're talking about helping young people build better relationships with themselves and their families. And to do that, we're joined by Jeremy Manet of Pacific Teen Treatment Center, a 30 to 60 day residential treatment center for adolescents and teens struggling with mental and emotional health issues. Jeremy founded Pacific Teen Treatment to address the myriad of contemporary issues facing today's teenagers in a supportive environment that empowers and inspires them to live physically, mentally, and emotionally healthier lives. Having worked in adolescent treatment for over seven years, Jeremy has helped hundreds of parents and families find appropriate treatment for their teens and young adults, and we are happy to welcome you here today. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's oh, a pleasure are, to be here. We are grateful. I'm excited. We, we should call this trauma PTSD 911. Oh my God, if you have a teen, every parent needs to listen. Teen 911? Yeah, teen 911. Oh my God. I love it. Oh my God. Yeah. Wendy loves to talk about trauma. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, trauma babies love trauma babies. That's right. Yeah. So I just want to say that I met Jeremy really a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I uh, went to a uh, uh, what a, um, program for teens. Yeah. And uh, checked out the program, and we met that way, and then stayed connected. And uh, I definitely call him whenever I have really hardcore, intense crisis management cases, supervision. Um, you know, I am a therapist who takes all the cases nobody wants. They have been passed by from three to five therapists and they get to me and I say, okay, I'm, I'm, yes, let me find out what it's about. And then I'll say, Jeremy, help. Always want to do what we can. I mean, we're working with teens who are in, you know, real crises and really struggling and, and need a really positive, supportive environment, which is what this is all about for us. 
tell us a little bit about you. How did you get into the field? So I'm, um, I went through some of my own struggles from my late teens into my early 20s, and I saw firsthand kind of the lack of resources for young people needing help. And not just like punitive approaches or drug rehab, but the underlying mental health issues or emotional health issues and how people feel about themselves and, you know, regulating their emotions and, and all these things that are really internalized for people that they struggle with. And, you know, when I kind of worked through some of my own issues over time into my early 20s, I, I got an offer to work in a treatment program and never something I really intended on doing. But, you know, it was the time in my life I took the opportunity and it was about seven or eight years ago and I've kind of grown in the industry, I did. Um, I was a program coordinator for a while. I did admissions for a number of years before going out on my own to open up uh, Pacific Teen Treatment. Woo! And yes. how long has this been off and rolling? This is kind of a new. It's a venture. new program. Yeah, we've been open to clients now for about four months. Um, it's a small program. We just treat six teens at a time. Um, you know, we've had a really good response, and you know, I've developed working relationships with people in the industry like Dr. Wendy and, and others and, um, you know, who kind of really value this approach and know how needed it is. Um, so it's been great and, and just trying to outreach and, and spread the word and, you know, so we can help as many people as we can. So I know that some of the things you uh, you highlight in your literature is uh, that you help kids with contemporary teen issues. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could enlighten us on what some of those contemporary teen issues are that are affecting youth today. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of piggybacking on what I was sharing, you know, so many programs, especially for adolescents, are focused on drug use, they're focused on behavior modification, and really treating the more of the kind of outlandish or um, outward-oriented behaviors, the physically aggressive, um, you know, running away, drug use, which is needed, but there's less of a place for teens, you know, dealing with these internalized issues. So the teens that we work with, you know, they're dealing with issues around self-harm, disordered eating, you know, we see a lot of technology addiction, whether it's computers, social media, you know, cell phones in general. Trans? Um, yes, sexual and gender identity issues, and, and just, you know, teens that struggle in a different capacity than, than what we think of. So, you know, the contemporary issues to me are, you know, things related to technology, you know, trauma, and, and We'll get into this in more detail, I know, but different types of trauma, you know, not just the, the, the sexual assault or the emotional abuse or the physical assault, but lighter traumas that happen at a young age that can really impact teens as they develop emotionally. Um, so those are a lot of the focuses uh, that we look at. And how have you seen technology impact uh, mental health, the mental health of young people? Well, I think it's it's playing a big role for today's teens. I mean, I think it, it starts almost before just the social media and the technology, but like the pressure that us that our society inherently places on these teens and, you know, to look a certain way, to dress a certain way, to get grades, you know, if you don't get into the college, you won't have a successful career. And, you know, it starts there and our society has layered this on so thick. And then, you know, social media and, and technology just gives these young people access, you know, to, to almost too much information. Um, and, and they can kind of dig themselves a really deep hole that way of, you know, getting going down a bad path in terms of researching or looking up the wrong information. And then social media specifically, you know, opens up for lots more bullying, um, which, you know, can really impact young people. 
Um, and then more of that, you know, that self-doubt and that self-criticism basing based off what they're viewing of other people on social media, which for the most part is not accurate. You know, it's, it's this kind of glorified portrayal that that can really impact how other people perceive themselves. So when we talk about attachment, we're really talking about disorganized attachment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really unhealthy attachment, avoidant, isolating, you know, pushing people away, you know, rather than when you struggle, rather than reaching out to those around you to get help, we see more and more people isolating themselves, pushing everyone away, their parents, their friends, you know, activities that they were passionate about. I mean, everything gets pushed aside and they just want to, you know, isolate and kind of hide from the world, which unfortunately only exacerbates these problems as they grow mm -hmm. and, and kind of snowball. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing, when we talk about technology addiction, are we talking about um, like pornography? Are we talking about gamers? Do you have kids who are influencers or like gaming sponsored on another level? It's, it's, we're seeing some of that. I mean, it's a lot of just the social media, you know, and, and then can be computer games. I mean, I worked with a family recently where their teen was, was absorbing as much information as possible. A lot of it was like in, intellectual, you know, adult information. It wasn't inappropriate content, but he was using that as his escape. And rather than facing anything in his life, he would just read and, and watch YouTube videos and yeah. TED Talks, which when you think about it may <laughs> not be the most unhealthy thing on the surface, Except when you look at the impact it's having on his relationships. And no himself, social. No social life, cutting yeah. off his parents, you know, just total isolating from everything real in the world um, because it, it's safer in the moment for them. It's, it's, they're just hiding, you know, out of fear mostly. Right. So just kind of uh, paralyzed with anxiety and yeah. trauma and well, self-medicating right. with like, technology. Yeah, yeah. Really. If, you, if you're consuming a lot of TED Talks and, and YouTube videos or information on even, even things like climate change or politics at a young age, I imagine that could, as you're saying, just fill you with such a heightened level of anxiety. Yeah. If it does that to us as adults yeah. and, and most of us we don't even want to go out of the house kind of like, ah, exactly or, or get we get sad because we feel like hopeless or powerless to mm -hmm. affect change in any significant ways for a young person who doesn't really have the any learned coping skills in the way that we do or their brains aren't fully formed even um i, I imagine that that can be incredibly overwhelming and so the detox that takes place i know that parents try to separate the kids from technology and the kids uh you know when they're at the red light level i always think of the traffic light mm -hmm. and when they're at the red light um you know kids have thrown their computers or laptops out of the room they put holes in the walls they get aggressive with their parents they uh and then parents one up where they take the doors off the hinges it all what the spirals. fuck what yeah it all what? spirals out of control what so tell us a little bit what what kind of war stories and what would you tell parents well and i think and you touched on something just a second ago that i think is important you know i think traditionally our society looks at behaviors as like drugs as the only negative coping skill you know but what we're talking about this technology fills that same void so rather than you know feeling overwhelmed emotionally and choosing to smoke a joint or reach out for a substance you know they're filling that same void through technology so when you pull that 
away that crutch, <clears throat> no matter how unhealthy it may be, when you pull that crutch away, there's going to be an impact. They and feel raped is what they yeah, tell I mean, me. And, and it really is. I mean, there's this withdrawal, you know, and it's not in a physical withdrawal. Like you might have opiates or alcohol or certain substances, but there's this emotional withdrawal. It's their safety blanket and you pull that away and they're raw without it. And that's where you need to supplement. You can't just take that away without helping fill that void with something else. And obviously it needs to be a healthy way to cope and manage our emotions and learning how to process through those things and understand ourselves better. I also see this as very close to eating disorders because the how it's different mm-hmm. from drug use, you know, like heroin or meth or some of the heavier drugs, is technology and, and food, those are things that we can't really live without now. Yes, it's not realistic to think that you're going to not that you're going to live in today's world as a teenager, a, a young adult, adult to live in the world without using technology, without having a cell phone or email or internet access the same way like you can't live without eating food. So when you have a, you know, eating disorder, you have to find that healthy relationship, you know, and for everyone that's different and with computers and technology and cell phones and all these things, it's that exact same dynamic. I couldn't agree more with that. So how how do you begin with something like that? I mean, you don't you know don't give away all the secrets, but like <laughs> give them away. What the hell? Well, just just a taste. Just give me just a taste. Well, we first one's free. Well, <laughs> we start trying to. We don't even start focusing on the technology at first. Let's talk about how you feel about yourself. Let's talk about what's going on emotionally underneath, like your self worth or your self esteem, and you know some of these kind of baseline feelings almost, which. When teens come to us, they don't, they're not connected to that. And we have to help them really even understand that and verbalize. Yeah, verbalize. I mean, a lot of times they don't know how to put it into words. And that's where an intensive environment, you know, we have staff available, therapists on staff almost 24 hours a day. So when you need, if you're in a hot moment, if there's a crisis coming up, there's someone in the moment to talk about it. We're an outpatient therapy that's just not a reality, you know? So having that ability, to help them in the moment when they feel their anxiety spiking, when they feel something emotionally coming on, working through it in the moment. And then once you start building that foundation, this kind of emotional operating system, if you will, then, you know, as you make some progress, then you can start looking at how the behavioral side ties in. How do you use your computer or your social media accounts when you feel overwhelmed or anxious and start to build a relationship and help the teen make that connection? Because... This is yeah. with adults, but especially with teens, like you can't tell them these things. And they like, don't know. They, no. It's just a numbing out. Yeah. Like, you you know? got to help them see it and yeah. connect it themselves because no matter how much as a, as a parent or as a therapist or even as a friend, like you can't force someone to see this dynamic, um, especially when they're already emotionally overwhelmed. So we have to help them, you know, make that connection. And then we can start, you know, approaching the behavioral side more directly. I have just never referred so many teens uh, to either psychiatric evaluation to get, you know, 51 and 50, uh, yeah, hospitalization, or just to programs because it's way above. And I'm kind of like what I call a concierge therapist. I'm pretty much trained in crisis management, so I'm pretty much 24-7. Mm-hmm. And nobody has ever in over 20 years really uh, been using that abusively. Like, I, you know, they, they do reach out when they're in crisis, but... But some of these cases, you know, I don't want you to come to my office five times a week. Like, it's not appropriate. Well, it's not appropriate. I can't yeah. help you. And and you need way more. And, you know, it's uh, it's a uh, it's it, it, I think it's 
the generation. We talk about Generation Z a lot. I don't know if you're seeing more of the younger kids coming in or even baby alphas are on their way up, you know, because now your kids at your center probably have children that are younger. I mean, siblings that are younger that are the alpha generation and what the impact on that. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, about five years ago or so when I started doing admissions work primarily, you know, I was working with a lot more, you know, 16, 17 year old clients and families, you know, that are, you know, almost in young adulthood, looking at colleges and in that sort of mode in life. You know, these days we're seeing a lot more 13, 14 year old clients and 15 year olds who are dealing again with a lot of these, what we look at as more contemporary issues. You know, they're, they're not touching drugs. You know, they're not going there. I mean, they may if they don't get the help they need down the line. They're doing a lot of sexting, let me tell you well, that. They're doing a lot of, they're finding lots of other ways. Boys, to don't send COVID. penis pictures, please, please. And girls, no. No, boob, no. Yeah. No boob shots. Forever. I know we, we're body mm. confident and that's wonderful and we want you to. But I mean, you know, there's just, and it, it's, it, so we're like it, all of them are doing it, well, Jeremy. So comes, then, and we see this, I and mean, we have these, we have young people who have put these things out on their social media that impact the way the world views them, society, their friends, and and a teen doesn't isn't able to comprehend how something like that can impact them in the big picture and in the future. And then on top of that, they see it happening all over society, you know. And I think this is a big piece that ties into all these struggles. I mean. I saw just on earlier this morning, I got an alert on my phone about a Disney star who I guess was being blackmailed and chose to release her own topless picture. Yeah. And it's like mm-hmm. to take control, which I get, but you know, again, these teens can't really take in the full message. They see the image and they see, oh, look at this person. They're revealing these, you know, sexy pictures. So yeah. let me do that and just not understanding how, how it can really impact them and I just also want to say one thing, excuse me. I just want to say, very interesting, over 20 years, I have not once gotten a parent of a boy who sent a dick pic. But it's all girls and boob pictures. Isn't that kind of interesting? Don't you think that's like why boys are sending them right and left? How come parents don't? What what is that about? That I don't know. I mean, I think it's our, you know, the way our society is still backwards and looking at things that are okay for men to do and not women. I mean, it's 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 bizarre. But now what we're seeing also is like there's starting to be legal consequences coming into oh, play. Oh, yeah, sex you know, offenders. It's, yeah, you can Raps. be a sex offender, you know, child pornography, even for just having these pictures on your phone. And, you know, which... It's probably a good thing, but again, these teens don't understand like this, the high stakes that they're playing with um, and how it can impact them, keep them in and out, or put them in jail potentially, you know, have these really serious legal consequences. And on top of that, as the as you were saying before, just the traumatic effects that it can have on the other person as well. Um, mm-hmm. If you're sending the dick pic to somebody, that that can feel like sexual assault to somebody, um, that it can be uh, perceived as something very traumatic for somebody else. But that's just like one of many potential traumas. Yes. So I, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the effects of unprocessed trauma on adolescent and, and teens. What are, what are some of those uh, effects? What can happen if people... Just decide, like, yeah, I'm not going to send my kid there. I'm gonna, like, we're, they'll grow out of it. This is a phase. They're, you know, don't address these mm-hmm. traumas and these contemporary teen issues that are causing these acting out behaviors. What can happen? 
So I call Jeremy all the time <laughs> and I say, Jeremy, you know, please help me with the situation. And he is loving and kind and supportive. And he talks to the parents and we, you know, educate them on looking at the website and what treatment would look like. And then they say, oh, God, that sounds good. And then, uh, you know, it's a little quiet on the teen's end. And so they go underground and it gets a little quiet. And then the parent is in denial and the parent says, oh, God, everything's fine. We're fine. And then. And uh, the child, you know, has an outburst and aggression and uh, it becomes suicidal, homicidal. And uh, and then they call Jeremy again. <laughs> yeah, and it's just a cycle and this pattern. Until they're and, ready. Yeah, and, and it's hard because, you know, taking the step of going into a residential program, it's, it's scary, you know, for anyone. And especially when we're talking about a parent admitting your child into a facility. There's also all these negative connotations and fears around what that means and you know drugs and rehab and hospitals and you know how it might impact someone's future without the understanding of like if I don't get my kid help there may not be a future for that person um, and then you know kind of circling back what we see with these teens who have been through these traumas are they 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 struggle with their emotional development they struggle in their ability to regulate and manage their emotions to understand their emotions you know and look this is hard work i have adult friends who don't know how to do this and now. i just wrote yeah. that i said what about parents mental health issues hello well that's a big piece i mean and, and that's why in our program we put a really large emphasis on on supporting the parents and not just through family therapy and, and parenting work but like we put we we do couples counseling with families and we really have to help them see how you know they're internalizing this and how it's impacting their own anxiety their relationship you know how the parents dynamics come into play and there tends to be one parent who's more on the forefront the other parent who's more in the background and you know one parent's carrying more pressure i mean these dynamics it impacts the whole family when a kid struggles and you know that was a focus when we built this program with my clinical staff was like, how do we really address this larger issue? Because a teen can kick ass with us in treatment for 30 or 45 or 60 days, but if they go home and, and the parents and the family are not united and able to communicate and on the same page, and it doesn't mean they're gonna be perfect in that fight, like of course these are teens, but they need to have common ground and have the ability to communicate and, and be moving in the same direction. When they come into us, everyone's pulling themselves in, in different directions and it's, it can be a real clusterfuck sometimes. And then also divorced families or single parents. Yeah, all of it. I mean, parents that are divorced that co-parent well, parents that are divorced that can't be in the same room with one another and trying to get them to see how that impacts their child and their child's emotional health and then ultimately their child's relationship with each parent. You know, these, these are all intertwined and sometimes people don't want to look at that. They want to look at isolated pieces without seeing how it impacts the larger picture or the other family members or ambivalence sorry yeah no I think <laughs> ambivalence that's just... about i say i want my kid to be healthy and so go learn the tools but i don't really because if my kid got healthy i have to get well, my shit together I gotta deal with right and well that was that is the point that i was thinking about when i was listening to jeremy too is that uh for parents, and this is one of the reasons why I won't work with kids unless they actually want to mm -hmm. do the work, because the parents have their own feelings. It can be a parent saying, you know, fix this kid, and the kid doesn't feel like there's something wrong with them. Or it's, you know, the, the kid has all these issues, and the parents don't want the child to get help because they feel like they're going to, the parents feel like they're going to be exposed. And so we have to always be so careful and thoughtful about not shaming parents for what they don't know too because sometimes 
they didn't get the support yeah. and the lessons. They don't have the tools that they need uh, to support their kids. So I love what you're saying about really integrating the family into the treatment program because when they're gone. Yeah. And there's serious, you know, societal and generational differences. Like the way that, you know, a lot of these parents, especially some of the older parents that, that I work with, you know, when they were brought up or they were teens, like they weren't allowed to talk about their emotions. Like it was taboo. You didn't talk about these things. You bottled things up and you pretended like things were fine. And you man up. Yeah, you just well, man, yeah. yeah, there's a huge yeah. gender difference in that. Too. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Especially the dads, messages. you know, yeah. but but regardless, even with the women, it's like it's a totally different ballgame these days with the way, you know, emotions are at play and society's looking at things and you know finally we're seeing it you know people being proactive and talking about mental health issues I mean to me a big one you know is like professional athletes like there's a bunch of these NBA players who have come out over the past few years and talked about their own mental health issues and like all-star big NBA players you know and you're seeing it in the in the entertainment world I mean these are the messages that our younger generations need to get. Like, it's okay to talk about this. It's okay to struggle. You're going to struggle, you know? And then you have the other population that that's all they want to do is talk about it. Right. In a very dramatic, another well, level. It, it becomes their persona. Yeah. You know, we have clients who, you know, they so attach and relate to their struggling side and they become comfortable in that. And, and you know, and that's scary and dangerous in a whole nother way that, you know, then, then we're talking about getting institutionalized and teens who become so comfortable in treatment or in hospitals or in the girl interrupted that they, stuff. Yeah, that they don't that they're scared to go home because they know it's going to be hard and you know and that's also you know part of the 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 goal of treatment is not to get them to behave well in treatment. Like that's pretty easy. You have twenty four hour support. You know you're getting a lot of help. You got a chef. Yeah, we treat them well. We have some fun, but like you know, preparing them for the real world is what this is about, and not you know not just getting them to do well with us because that's that's not so hard sometimes. <laughs> so, what are some of the things that you are doing in your program to help young people who are there uh, prepare for the real world? And I love to hear that, by the way. So yes. I'm very happy. Yeah. So. So, you know, we, we, part of it is just meeting each person where they're at, you know, treating six clients at a time, you know, we're doing customized, individualized treatment plans for each person and really focused on their issues, both kind of the behavioral side where they need help and then the emotional side and, and what's, you know, what's the goal of treatment for each person and because that, it's not the same. So you have to have that ability. And I think a lot of programs, you know, kind of force everyone to fit into a predetermined treatment totally. model or plan. Yeah. And that just doesn't work. It doesn't work with adults and it really doesn't work with teens. So that's the first piece is like, you know, meeting everyone where they're at. We do individual therapy six days a week. We're doing group therapy two to three times a day, you know, doing everything from like kind of process groups, you know, insight oriented groups to, you know, DBT and CBT and art therapies. And, you know, we want to expose them to a lot and see what they respond to. And then we can individualize it further. Um, but beyond the, the therapy and the emotional work, you know, we want to help promote a healthy, balanced nutrition, you know, exercise, just our general self-care. You know, when we're eating right and taking care of our bodies, we wake up in the morning and we're going to feel better. You know, there's a direct correlation there. And it's not something you can tell a teenager because they will instantly dismiss you. When you prove it to them, when they're with us for a week and they wake up and they're feeling better, like you can point to that and say like, hey, don't, you know, and they can't. They can't spin circles around that one. So, you know, being real with them, being honest and, and helping them understand that this is really about them. Um, and yeah, you know, we, we make them do things they don't like, you know, talk about emotions a lot and, and go to like really yucky, uncomfortable emotional places that they've spent a lot of time and effort like 
purposely avoiding, but that's the work right there. Until they process through some of that, you know, they're going to be held back. And, uh, and it's hard and it's scary, but, you know, with help, both like in a residential program as well as, you know, family support and therapy, like, you know, you can, you can process through that and take control of it. Do you see a high correlation of learning disabilities also with the social emotional? You know, we do. And it's something we don't do direct testing for learning disabilities. But, you know, we see so many clients who come into the program on ADD meds or ADHD meds. I mean, they're on speed, you know, and do they need it? Like, maybe, maybe not. But it's it's such a go to and it gets given to so many clients. Oh, it's like candy. Yeah. I mean, it's just and every psychiatrist is just they just love to give it out and not realizing like, this is also going to impact someone's mental health, particularly their anxiety, because, you know, um, there can be a lot of overlap between like an ADD diagnosis and, and anxiety, you know, totally. and, and you give someone speed and that's just going to exacerbate their anxiety. Or further. just PTSD. Yeah. All yeah. of I mean, it's just it's just treating a surface. Well, and then there's the opposite problem that can happen as well, where because um, because anxiety, depression, ADHD, these all look different, not only in the individuals, but also across genders. There's mm-hmm. a, and, and so a lot, there's a higher incidence of ADD and ADHD being diagnosed in boys and less in girls and higher like depression, anxiety mm-hmm. in girls. But a lot of that depression, anxiety in girls is misdiagnosed because it's actually ADD but it looks different because they're not all hyper, but and because they can focus, which is another one of those, you know, illusions that if you've got ADHD or ADD, you can't focus, which is not true. You can on certain things that you're really into, mm-hmm. sometimes overly so. Girl, I made a living off PTSD yeah, and yeah, ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but right, but for for a young for a young girl who's depressed because she can't finish anything yeah, no. or she's rushing to finish things at the last minute and it's not up to par because there's also a perfectionist thing that comes into play yeah. and it's an Where it interrupts your life. Right. And so, you know, there's all, also all of that. So I love to hear that you're kind of looking at the individual and I, I'm, I, I don't like the fact that kids get medicated as much as they do today. Well, well, this is something I was just wanting to share and you just, great segue for me is I can't tell you how many families I work with their parents tell me, like I took my child to a psychiatrist, he met with my child for 10 minutes and gave me a diagnosis and medication. And it's like it's just, it's it blows my mind and it's terrifying and it's disturbing um, because there's just, it's just we're so quick to act and I think our society we love labels. We love quick fixes. Like, you know, there's so many misconceptions around medication. Do you have a pill for that? Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, take this pill. you Everything will be okay. It's like, that would be great. And then none of us would have jobs. There would be no yeah. mental health industry yeah. or therapy. But it's like, it just it's just not the case. And people are so misled and just, there's so much misinformation around it, around medication specifically. And look, there's some great psychiatrists out there right. and great <clears throat> doctors, but and there's, there's absolutely times when your child should be medicated. Yeah, absolutely. As well. absolutely. But, but not just, after 10 minutes. Yeah, and we just don't look at it as a first resort. It's like, let's look at the whole person, let's work all the options. Like, you know, at 14, at 17, like they're developing still, like physically, mentally, emotionally. So, to, if you're going to introduce a medication or something, like, there's, you better be sure that's the right step to do, not just like, oh, let's just try this. And, and a strong team where a therapist and a psychiatrist yeah. and nutritionist or yeah. whatever is, is, is really holding that fam- family, not just the client. The yeah, kid. it's like people are collaborating because, again, that yeah. way you can really look at the whole person and address the whole person and not just 
look at one side and not realizing, well, maybe they, you know, have nutritional issues that are impacting their depression, you know, or whatnot. And, and just, there can be, there's lots of, lots of ways to look at these things, not just medication is the only way to, 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 you know, quote unquote, fix someone. So what are some ways that adults can help empower and support and motivate young people and teens? I mean, cause you even were saying it about something, you know, we tell them this will make you feel good. This will be better for you. And they're just kind of programmed not to listen to us at a certain point. Like, well, I, th- one of the things I think, and I think this comes from parents, it comes from like aunts and uncles and family friends, but like for adults and parents to talk to children and teens more about mental health and how they feel and maybe their own anxieties. Like there's no one in the world that does not deal with anxiety to some extent. You and know? there's healthy anxiety. It's, yeah. Well, exactly. yeah. It, like, yeah. Sometimes there's re- and sometimes and there's real, real reason to be depressed and, too. And depression also like these are real things. So when we, when we're working with teens and when I'm working with families in the admissions process, I'm very clear. We're not curing your child. Like I wish we could. It just, it doesn't work like that. You know, anxiety is part of life being a teenager, like, you're going to struggle, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to stumble. And that's okay. Like, that's how we learn and grow and develop as a person. But we have to have like the skill set internally to, to manage that and know like, I can make a mistake and not, you know, and bounce back and not have to like, totally, you know, go on a horrible detour down, a, down the rabbit hole. Can I just say, please, can we talk about marijuana right now? Just just a little bit, because yeah. here we're doing work with teens and, you know, the vaping and marijuana and it's legal or whatever it is. Everybody's brother has a card. But here's the thing that I'm finding in private practice over and over again. Parents are so high all the time. And so then they want to get their kids, you know, to, to not be high. But there's just so much marijuana in the family. And so then you have parents that are high. And so how do you, you know, it's, it's just a big question to how you deal with the whole marijuana thing, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, and it's not a judgment because some people do use marijuana and they're functioning, but I'm talking about these kids that say, you tell me not to use drugs, but you're using them or whatever it is. I mean, the whole marijuana talk is maybe that's a show in itself. We have to or do. talking about like, you tell me not to use marijuana, but you know, meanwhile, you're on Celexa and Xanax and Adderall or mm-hmm. whatever. And the good news, I guess, is that the kids are getting, you know, the, the marijuana from, you know, uh, well, they, don't have to to, they don't have to go to the streets anymore scary. and buy it from so someone scary. shady. You go right. to like a, you know, MedMen on Beverly Drive right, or right. whatever, you know. And, and I think, I mean, again, I think a yeah, pot could definitely be its own show. That's for sure. But, I mean, we have these young people that the ones that do come in that have, that are smoking. It's like, it's their best friend. It's their crutch. It's their safety blanket. It's their teddy. It's everything for them. That's why cigarettes work and, for me. Well, and I get it to a certain extent, like, because, look. The problem, one of the problems with pot is it works. Like it numbs your emotions. So if you're feeling anxious or overwhelmed or depressed or like whatever it may instant. be, yeah, you smoke a joint or whatever you do and it numbs that. Now, obviously, like we have the insight to know it's just kicking that can down the road and the s- snowball's growing and growing, but teens don't care about that. All they want is like, how do I make myself feel better in the moment? And it works. So, you know, and I think part of that is, is you're right. Like there's a lot of people who live high functioning extremely successful professions, individuals, whatever you want to look at it, and they smoke pot a lot, and that's okay. But So how do you deal with that in the treatment? Do the kids call out, the parents? Well, we, yes. So if we have a a parent that is, you know, having an unhealthy relationship with substances, you know, we talk about that in family therapy. Like, we're not scared of the parents. Like, we're going to do what's right. We're not going to, like, 
bully anyone or attack anyone, but the same way that we're going to talk to a child about what's appropriate and what's not, we're talking to parents about. And you're exactly right. Like, these kids are smart. And if they see mom every night, you know, with her vodka, you know, and like slurring her words by the end of the night, like, you know, you can't expect them to respond when mom says you can't smoke pot, you know, like. Um, well, they're role modeling a coping yeah. mechanism and then saying, well, yeah. what do you think that's going to do for you? <laughs> and a lot of this, a lot of the work for us, especially early on in treatment is not getting stuck in these power struggles, you know, so when a kid comes in and they're you know, willing to like fight to the death for their pot smoking. Like, okay, we're not going to get into that. We're not going to debate that with them at that point. We'll almost, let's put that to the side. Let's talk about what else is going on in your life. You know, how are your relationships and your connections and how do you feel about yourself? And once you can start building rapport and making, making progress on that side of things, then you can tie in, okay, well now how does pot impact that, you know, and help them kind of see some of these connections. And rather than, again, like we said earlier, you can't, you can't force a teenager to see something. The more you like try and force them to see something, the less likely they're going to accept that, you know, but when you can help them make these connections kind of on their own or with your help, you know, that's where you can make some powerful changes, help them make some powerful changes. And, and the, it's the relationship, right? It's always the relationship. If they build trust with an adult and, and safety, then they can become more motivated. Yeah. And we build trust and safety by being authentic and yeah. being real. And that's why, like, when you're fake with a teen, whether as a therapist or as a parent or a teacher or really anything, like, when you're fake, like, they know that. And they're not going to be real. They're going to block you out. And, you know, and that's part of the work, you know, for, for staff, especially, like, younger therapists when we do have associates, you know, helping them learn how to connect with these teens, different from how they were taught in, you know, grad school about, like, sitting in a private practice office. Like, no, you need to connect and relate and Obviously, there's a, a appropriate and healthy way to go about doing that, which we talk about also. But, you know, we got to build rapport before you expect a teen that they're going to let you into these deep, dark, emotional places that they've worked so hard to block everyone out of. You need to build trust with them. Otherwise, just not happening. What about vaping? Do you have problems with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean and, every place does. Every yeah, school does. Every parent does. And, and these days, again, it's like it's amazing how easy it is to get high, you know? Oh, I or, mean, just the vaping, like the, the nicotine the, the stuff? The nicotine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, thing. yeah, I right. Mean, you can get it's the all, thing. To me, it's all the same. Yeah, you right. know, like, yes, obviously there's a difference, you know. They must come in and hide and, it. Yeah, they try. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we're pretty good at catching them in that. And in such a small environment, you know, we, we have our eyes on them almost all the time. And we read between the lines and you watch them and, you know, we give them space to interact and be themselves. But we're always kind of observing in different ways to, to read between the lines of what they're, what they're telling us, especially early on in treatment. We don't expect someone to come in in those first few days and tell us everything about themselves. Like that would be... You expect them to be messy. Yeah, that would be unhealthy in a different way. Like they should hold some things back until they trust us a little more, you know, otherwise they're over-disclosing and then, you know... Reactive that, attachment. Yeah, all yeah. sorts of good stuff. So what might a parent want to... Uh, when might a parent want to consider a residential program for their kid? Yeah, I think that's one... It's a question that I get a lot and I think it's hard because there's no, there's no black and white answer. There's no playbook for these things. You know, sometimes a parent calls me and their child has, you know, maybe made a serious attempt to harm themselves or take their life and they're in the hospital. And obviously that's a little more straightforward, although you'd be amazed how many times someone's in the hospital and both the hospital and the parents are just planning on going home afterwards. So, well, your child made a very serious attempt. They're calling out for help and, and they're telling you they may not have the desire to live. So let's take some action here. But 
those are a little more of the extreme cases. And they but, say, thank you very much. We're going to take them home. We have, yeah, that, we we have, have a good a, idea. We have dinner like, plans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but for most families, and it's hard because, you know, one of the things that I look at is like, how, how are the other people in the family being impacted? You know, because again, look, if a teen is struggling, that's important. But at a certain point, you know, if there's other children in the home, siblings, you know, they get neglected or they start to get sucked into the chaos that's being created. Mom and dad, relationships, marriages are getting, are falling apart because parents are dealing with so much of their, you know, anxiety and so focused on their child and not communicating. So those are some of the big pieces, you know, and then we work with a lot of families where the, the teen is, you know, they're not participating in their lives. It's a struggle every day to get them to go to school to get them to therapy, you know, maybe they'll go one day and not the next day. And, and look, it's not just them trying to be difficult. It's like they wake up some mornings and they are overwhelmed with their anxiety or their depression or how poorly they feel about themselves. And, and it's just they're unable to do it. And forcing them and dragging them out of the house is just not going to work or it's not the answer. Um, and there is no real, I mean, part of the problem is as a parent, what do you do? You know, mm -hmm. there can be legal issues with truancy. I mean, you know, so those are some of the big things that, that I, when I'm talking to families that I'm talking about in terms of like, these are some of the the, uh, the lines that get crossed that show that residential might be something that's really needed to be looked at more seriously. I'm just curious, who won't you accept in your program? We don't work with clients who are physically aggressive, history of being violent, like any sexual perpetrators, fire starters. Again, like we work with a really gentle emotional population. No animal cruelty. No animal yeah. cruelty. And what I look at a lot are teens. Teens in our program, they internalize their struggle. They beat themselves up. They're really nasty to themselves. Sure, sometimes it comes out at home and explosive outbursts in the house, but not clients who are getting into it in school and having those sorts of physical outbursts or altercations. Um, so those are the big ones. And again, no juvenile hall kids. No juvenile hall. I mean, again, I won't. Ish. I, ish, I won't like say none whatsoever because there might be someone who finds himself in that spot who would be an appropriate fit for and us. Workable. Yeah, yeah. So it's something where you know each situation we got to look at, but generally that's you know if someone is ending up in that place, there's there's generally some severe conduct stuff you yeah, know right. we're not a behavior modification program you know primary conduct disorders and it's just not what we're built for you know we're, we're really focused on again the more gentle side the the teens that internalize their struggle the trauma victims so anxiety like, depression yes, bipolar yeah, the, the mental emotional health side of things yeah, yeah so what is an appropriate way for parents to approach their child the young person yes. in their life about going to a residential program yeah. and this is another conversation that i have with with most parents because it's hard and it's scary and one of the, the first thing i tell parents is you have to remember like the the stories that teenagers if you ask the average teenager what they think about residential treatment first off they won't know what that means all they know about is rehab the word rehab which i don't use under any circumstances or wilderness that's a big one well wilderness and yeah well, but, but this is it. They just think, you know, all the stories that they've heard about or read online are horrible, punitive, scary things. Yeah. Wilderness, hospitals, you know, people getting gooned, where transports come, you know yeah. I mean? Oh, yeah. This, this is what, these are what the stories are out there, um, whether social media or friends or if someone's been to the hospital, like they instantly are fearful that they're being punished, that they're going to be sent to some place, they're going to be treated poorly, you know, these sorts of dynamics. So I stress to parents one of the first things you need to talk about is make clear that's not what you're looking at. You're not trying to punish them. You're not, it's not a hospital. It's not an institution. There's no bars on the windows, you know, and really encourage, I encourage them to show them the website, mostly like show them the house, like show them the staff. Like we have a young staff that can connect and relate to them. It's a beautiful environment, you know, 
helping initially we have to change this image in their head from like i'm a fuck up i'm being punished there's something wrong with me i'm bad to like i'm going somewhere to get help you know and and sometimes you have the kids that say i want to go to a program i need a break they're having yeah. a breakdown and they need to tell the parents because the parents have an idea uh, or it's what it looks like. I call it the audience, right? Like, oh, my kid can't go to a program. What would so-and-so think? Well, the stigmas are real. You or know, it's the parents. opposite. My kid goes to this nice, fancy program and then the other parents go, oh, maybe my kid should go. It's crazy. It's it's. There's lots of sick variations of it. But, uh, <laughs> Which means but, like uh, it, someone might meet you and it might not be appropriate. Therapy might be uh, just... Yeah, and there's times where someone doesn't need residential or when I'm working with a family and, and there wouldn't be appropriate for our facility for a number of reasons. And that's not like good or bad. It's like this is not a one size fits all. You know, everyone needs the right approach for their, their teen and their family at that time. Um, and I think one of the interesting things I see a lot is, and a lot of this is semantics, you know, people talking about, I talk about like self-medicating through substances versus like drug addiction. And there's a fine line there, you know, and it can go from one to the other. Um, but the same idea, like I have parents who call me and say, oh, my child's not mentally ill. It's like, okay, but he has mental health issues. Does that make you feel better about it? You know, like sometimes just the way we say things. And, and again, to me, this ties with like the, the, the pressure that our society put and the implications that we have. But mm -hmm. sometimes it's just about semantics, like how, how you phrase certain things can really make a, a big difference mm -hmm. for the teens, but more so for the parents sometimes. What does it look like? after a teen has been through your program or the family has been through your program? So that's, I mean, a lot of that is built around the situation, you know, because the treatment goals are kind of focused on each person and, and dynamic. Um, but one of the things I look at from, from the teenage, from the teen side, from the client side is like helping them have a new kind of foundation that they can build off of so they have emotionally tools. yeah New tools and, and internally where they have a sense of self, they have a sense of like who they want to be, who they are, and, and then they can kind of understand their emotions better, you know, and it's not about controlling our emotions because that's not how things work. Um, mm -hmm. But it's about just having us being able to understand ourselves, react and, and know how to kind of manage ourselves emotionally through the ups and downs. Um, and this is a, a long term process. You know, all of our clients, when they leave treatment, we help with an aftercare plan that's, you know, outpatient therapy, sometimes intensive outpatient programming, you know, sometimes a psychiatrist, but also like other positive things in their lives, art or music or sports or whatever they're into, we want to incorporate that into their plan. Um, and then from the family perspective is like they need, the family needs to be on the same page. They need to have the ability to communicate, have a better understanding of one another, you know, and, and again, that's a long-term process. This is not about like fixing someone ever. I mean, I wish it was, but it just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. But it's about putting people kind of in a position where they have new skills, they have a better kind of foundation to build off of as an individual and as a family, and then helping them understand, like, you got to keep the work up, you know? So is that where the IOP comes in? So you've got your program, mm -hmm. so it's the 40 days, 30 days, whatever, then where did they go? So then it just depends. A lot of clients are transitioning to, to an intensive outpatient program. Others, you know, maybe into intensive individual therapy with school programming. I mean, again, it just depends, but there's always has to be aftercare. Because, Wonderful. Yeah, with us, I mean, look, again, 24-hour support and supervision to go from that to maybe just therapy once a week. I mean, you're, you're setting someone up to fail. And it know? happens all the time. Uh -huh. All the time. And yeah. a lot of times, aftercare, not and, enough aftercare. And yeah. this is an interesting dynamic we see when we're trying to put an aftercare plan in place. And a teenager, 
look, I'm, I get it when a teenager pushes back on going to tr more treatment. They say, oh, I've been here for 30 days. Now I need to do that. And that's part of our job in helping them understand that. But then to instantly see the parents kind of take their side on that. And rather than the parent understanding, like, no, I need to hold the line. This is what my child needs. Yeah, it's a, not a vacation. We haven't yeah, gone to Palm as, Springs and, and now we're home. And as a parent, like one Maybe. of the hardest things to do is to hold the line and say something to your child that you know they're not going to like or want to hear and, and not caving to that just to make them happy in the moment. Because that's that's a pattern that, that can be really unhealthy in lots of ways. Well, sure, because you're also setting your child up for a lifetime of thinking that people are going to uh, conform to their wants and yeah. needs and also sends out this message that you don't ever have to be awkward or ang anxious or uncomfortable, but I'm going to do everything possible to prevent yeah. that. And we see, and it comes from a good place. Of Let's be, you does. know, but it, it, it's, but does. it just, it, it, it doesn't have a good outcome. And we see this a lot, you know, with teens. And again, like we expose them to a lot of different types of therapy and activities and they don't love it all. And in fact, there are often things they really dislike and that's okay. Like you know? what? Do you exercise? That's a big well, one. Well, some of the exercise, you know, again, sometimes, you know, look, we do, we'll do music music therapy, we do art therapy, we do writing groups, you know, we don't expect every child to love all that. Do you, you surf know? or we horses? Go, we or... go surfing, we do equine therapy, <laughs> those are those are sporadic throughout the program, um, but the other therapies are more regular, and it's okay if they don't love it all. Part of life is doing things we don't like, and, you know, so, you know, they hate this, when they come to us and say, oh, this group is stupid, and I don't want to do it, and part of the conversation is, like, this is not going to be the last time that you're gonna have to do something stupid that you don't want to do like look at like a lot of people for work and i mean there's endless times in our life where we have to do things we don't want and you know and as a parent as much as we might try and shield our child from that it only makes things worse for them because it's it's just inevitable it's part of life for everyone and the other part of that is sometimes it's it is benevolent, and and I think that we always think that it's benevolent, but there's also this piece of it where the adult caregiver themselves don't want to be anxious and uncomfortable, and so it's easier for them for sure. to indulge their child under the pretense of, I just want my child to be happy, as opposed to, I don't want to be uncomfortable mm -hmm. telling them no. Well, we see this a lot. Parents who put their own yeah kind of mental health or not even mental health their own like comfort in the moment in front of what's best for their kid you know and uh and that's disturbing in many ways and something we see you know all too often and again i think it, it can come from the the patterns either what they got or in reaction to what they got right like it's mirroring what they got or it's a a rebuttal to what they got well and i can think of some families i worked with throughout the years where the parent had been through a trauma at some point in their life you know and and maybe totally you know maybe in their childhood or their adolescence but and it's coming out in their parenting style you know and it's about helping the parents see that and make that connection and and helping them find a place where they can do their own work as well like i can't tell you how often you know, look, personally, I believe everyone should be in therapy all the time. Like, there's no negative that comes from being in therapy. You're working on yourself. Like, you get a session and you get a session. Yeah, everyone therapy should for be everybody. sessions, <laughs> you know? And it's like, but with parents, you know, and it's it's hard because we're not telling them they need to go to therapy because they're, there's something wrong with them. But it's like, you got your own, this is hard. Your child's been struggling. You've been through a lot. Like, you need 
support for yourself that that's focused on you and we provide some of that but you know we're we're, we're looking at the larger picture so we can't give parents that the, the attention they each need you know on their own work um it's also considering that you're not broken but some of your behaviors are maladaptive or some of your behaviors are broken or imperfect or could improve and I think therapy is great for people too I these days because it encourages people to have these in-person, focused, one-on-one -on -one conversations that people don't have yeah. anymore. Well, we're always constantly evolving. Like whatever stage you are in life, you know, it's like you're changing and the world is changing and like the world's more fucked up now than it's been, you know, in and a very nobody's long time. talking. And nobody like, talks in their family. Everybody's typing. Yeah, yeah or they're just snapping, or, you yeah. know, selfies. Or and... you just tune out, you know, you put on the news or the TV and you just zone out and it's like there's just so many ways to distract ourselves um, in today's society and and easy to fall into these cycles where you know, all of a sudden you realize like you just come home and turn on the tv and watch tv for four hours eat dinner in front of the tv you know yeah, and it's the like the phone comes to dinner the phone comes yeah. to you know yeah right, yeah so i think some of these are related to what i was going to ask about what parents and caregivers could do to help get them to the uh, to help keep them from getting to the place where they need to go into a, a residential program so well, like, what's to, preventative? To me, it starts with that, like talking about things as a family, you know, or or if your child won't talk to a parent, like finding someone they will talk to, a therapist, an uncle, an aunt, you know, close family friend, you know. But So that's also identifying what a red flag issue is, right? Red flag. Yes. Because it could just feel normal in your family, but, you know, it's not normal. It, you know, you look at a teenager, okay, so they're in their room, you know, but are they in their room crying? Are they in their room sleeping for hours? Are they not eating or eating yeah. so much and been and well and what we see so often are these young people like they they're really good at like putting on the mask so they go to school for a few hours a day or they go to the therapist and they talk the talk and they look good and they pretend like everything's okay and they say what people want to hear yep. and then they come home and they collapse and that's where you see all the stuff mm -hmm. come out at home or then maybe they lock themselves in their room and they come out for dinner a couple hours later and they smile for dinner to make mom happy and then they go back into their room and they're crying or they're mm -hmm. cutting or they're yep you know, engage in Sexy something really or, unhealthy yeah. to, to manage these things. Um, so I think part of it comes from like, uh, as a parent, like being vulnerable, like when it, and this is something we do in family therapy intentionally in multifamily therapy, as well as individual is like, as a parent, like if your child sees you vulnerable, that's a positive thing. I think so mm -hmm. often our parents think, parents think, oh, like I can't be weak or sad, or I can't cry in front of my kid. It's like, no, that's healthy. And for a parent to see, uh, uh, for excuse me, for a child to see a parent get emotional and, and allow their emotions to come out. And, you know, that can be a really powerful thing in a healthy way. And, and showing your child, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to not know how to talk in your family. It's okay to feel, you know, yeah. whereas yeah. I think when, when we work around this image that everything's great all the time, like these kids think that's how they have to be. I need to look a certain way. I need to be thin and smart and smiley and, you know, do all these things. Otherwise I'm failing, yeah. you know, the pressure is insane. Yeah. yeah. And we have to be more thoughtful about the things that we say around young people generally, because a parent who is obsessed with how they look all the time, I'm so fat, I'm, so, I'm getting so old, then even if they're not, they're not telling the kid that they have to be a certain way, but the kid is witnessing that and thinking that that's normal 
and that that's that's ideal well i've seen some of those examples firsthand in malibu with some parents who are out with their kids like you know dress a certain way or you know and it's it's to me it's boggles my mind how a parent could walk out of their home dressed a certain way with their children like sexualized sexualized like revealing like inappropriate and you know and and again it falls into this image of like how we think we need to look or this image that we need to give out and you know and it's i think it's true as a society and then in la we have it a certain way you know i'm from new york there's a different set of pressures that come in new york and malibu Mm -hmm. you know so part of it is a general kind of overarching societal pressure and then in your communities there's other pressures that come along and sometimes that's about money or power or religion or whatever it may be but you know the there are layers to these things you know i'm always thinking about attachment styles and one of the things that i find fascinating uh, a, a doctor came out with the research about attunement and babies uh, who are held by their moms who have mm. a lot of facial botox and fillers and that the face can't move and so when these babies are trying to look at facial expressions they can't recognize it so they're not on the spectrum they can't read social cues so when you know so so they're projecting into their mommy's eyes and mommy can't move her face so the loneliness goes back into, they're not mirrored, so it goes back into internalized, uh, you know, self-doubt, insecurity, um, anxiety, and and just a certain level of neglect that is uh, so profound, there's no words, and then you get a 16-year-old who is diagnosed um, Asperger's or autistic when they're not. The mom can't fucking move her face. That's so fascinating, and it makes sense. I mean, just seeing... So you're getting those kids, too, that, you know... Or misdiagnosed. Yeah. But there's a whole generation of baby Zs and alpha babies and probably millennials at some point. Yeah, it's interesting. Just everything to take into consideration when you have an, uh, an angry, sad, violent, aggressive, uh, you know, self-injury teen. Yeah. It all matters. So, Jeremy, what are the most important relationship lessons you've learned over the years? And do you have any advice for listeners to improve their overall relationship or sexual health? So for me, I mean, you know, I think a big change for me was when I, you know, I came from a really loving home. I had, you know, supportive parents, um, grew up in New York City and, you know, we, we did, they did all right and were able to really take good care of me. And when I was really spiraling in my late tw- late teens and early 20s, you know, I put my parents through like a ton of pain and difficult situations. And my mom would tell me how she, after I kind of went through treatment and eventually started healing, she would talk to me about how like she wouldn't sleep at night and like wondering if I would come home and be alive or if I had hurt, you know, if something had happened because I was really putting myself in some dangerous spots and until you kind of gain your own kind of foundation and understand yourself emotionally. Like once I started seeing things more clearly and understanding myself and looking at this dynamic, it's like I was always an anxious kid and I was always worried about my parents and if they're okay. And I had an older sister and is she okay? And if they were fighting, you know, all, I would always internalize this stuff, just like a lot of our clients. And then I'm looking at this dynamic. It's like, okay, I love my mom so much. I'm always worried about her. Is she happy? Is she okay? And yet at the same time, like I've caused her so much pain by, and not intentionally, but by my own struggles, the way that's impacted her. So to me, like working through that and, and coming to terms with some of that and understanding it was a real moment for me that, that shifted, I think, the trajectory of my life in a lot of ways. So 
And in other words, what I'm doing is a lot of empathy therapy with my clients right now. And that sounds like at some point in your life, you wake up, however that is, whether it's hit bottom or get some help or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it's, wait, there's another person besides me. Yeah, it's my, not about me. My actions and my behaviors and even if... Empathy. Uh, yeah, they impact other people in my life, in all of our lives. It's a big you know? moment for anyone. Yeah, and it's a hard thing. I mean, as, as a teenager, you know, I wasn't certainly in a place where I was able to do that. I mean, that's a really big thing for a teenager, you know, and, and it's not always realistic at a certain point in time. Maybe they can start to see the pattern of the dynamic a little bit, you know. Um, and for everyone, that's different. Um, but for me, I think that was kind of one of the pieces that really shifted my perspective on relationships and how we impact each other. Come and talk to me. Please talk to me. I enjoy talking about these issues. Like they're uncomfortable and they're difficult, but it's like everyone deals with this, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Like we either have a family member or a close friend or a friend with like we all know someone who struggled, whether with substances or mental health or, or something along these lines, yet people are still so uncomfortable talking about it. So like, I, to me, it's like I'm passionate about it. I care. I want to help families directly in terms of helping teens and families, but also like just by talking about these things, like I'm out in the world and I, you know, my wife's in the art world. I go to dinner, you know, it's like you talk about these things. It helps people. People open up. I can't tell you. How many people have reached out to me, friends of friends, parents, friends, you know, like work for, you know, people who, when they realize that, that you're like safe to talk to about, they just, they want to talk and helping people understand our society. Like, yeah, you can talk about these things. It's, it's uncomfortable, but it's okay. And it's beneficial. I um, wonder what the correlation is between these YouTubers and talking to the world and technology and not being able to talk in their own life. Well, it's really, you know, and, and that's it. I mean, so many of these teens, they, they're they so comfortable communicating behind a screen, texting, messaging, liking, whatever, Facebooking, all these things. But like you put them in front of a, a peer or a colleague or whatever, and they, they don't know how to communicate or form a, like a connect, a relationship. They don't someone. even talk at school when they've been texting for three hours at night. Well, and I they go to school one, and they one don't of the talk. final straws for me after, you know, living and spending a lot of my life in New York was like being out and at some bar or some club or you seeing like this group of girls sitting at a table together, just all on their phones, you know? And like, it's just like, what are we doing? Like, what is this world come to? Yeah. Um, it's, so got to go it's back bizarre. to old school. Well, and I was also thinking about, you know, people who are on YouTube, whether it's young people or adults, and it can be very isolating when you're all by yourself and you're talking to the world and you're being very open because you kind of feel safe. You're in your safe space, which is can be a wonderful thing. But at the same time, would you be able to sit in front of an audience of 100 people, a million people, and speak as freely and as openly and... So there's this kind of illusion that's created as well of this intimacy that's that's being had that's really not yeah. happening. Well, and the clinical psychologist that I used to work with, you know, very talented uh, doctor, used an analogy which is so true. It's like emotions. It's like it's like a muscle. You know, you're not going to go to the gym and bench press, you know, 400 pounds your first day. Same with your emotions. You're not going to go and all of a sudden be able to like communicate so clearly around your deep sensitive and emotional material like you have to build up that muscle and and you know kind of learn how to talk you know, understand and communicate in these ways because our society so much of the communication now is just surface level nonsense um so it's it's like reprogramming 
the brain almost and then like you know gaining new muscles and new skills and committing to those skills too because even if you're doing that gradually you are going to i'm not even going to say you may you are going to encounter somebody who is uncomfortable who's not ready and you can take that as an excuse to shut down and stop working on it or you can well that's what's happening right everybody's bumping into social anxiety right (laughs) nobody has the social cues even you know in my waiting room yeah, I often, you know, my clients will just go right in the office. And so I pull them back and I go, hi, let's go back there. And I said, "Can we're going to work on eye contact, a smile. I can wave, give you a buddy hug, a fist bump, whatever. Acknowledgement of greetings, you yeah. know. And then when they go, if they leave, I go, uh, hey, did we forget something? Uh, no, my phone, no. And I said, a goodbye. Yeah. Just a simple, like, hey. I'm here, you're here, we just had, ex- had experience, you know, so just social cues. Yeah. And, and, and that's why your program is so important. I mean, we're just missing such a huge gap of old school, old fashioned, you know, communication. And, and it's sad on one hand that we have to have programs like yours, but on the other hand, what a blessing, yeah. you know, and, and you are changing and giving them a corrective emotional experience, which is fluffy for therapy talk, but you're really giving them <laughs> a new way to connect and, yeah. and, and to understand themselves important. and connect with themselves and others, you yeah. know, it's like, cause they come in and they're, they don't even know who they are. Exactly. You know, they're just, they're, they're just kind of going through the motions yeah. and that's just not a way to live life for an adult, let alone like a teen who's just getting started on their journey. And I love that you're working with younger people because then when they get to us as older people, then they have they have the foundation. Yeah. that's what it is. They and I talk about I talk about scaffolding, right? And in, in, internal scaffolding, and like mm. we are trying to like we're trying to strengthen it. And people think they have it. I'm like, yeah, but some of those bolts are kind of loose. Maybe they're not even missing. They're, they're completely missing, right? We got to strengthen that. Love that. I'm and gonna steal that like, one. And yeah, use it a it's little like bit. piece <laughs> by piece. Swoop. Yeah. Uh, and. And a lot of it is because they didn't get it when they were younger. And it is really something that we're constantly building as we are improving ourselves. So so thank you for that work that you're doing. You're welcome. Dr. Wendy's Dream Journal. So for the Dream Journal, every show we do a little idea of a Dream Journal. And for this, I think it's nice to, if you're a parent who's listening, to maybe journal a little bit about, uh, you know, what you, where are you stuck in your life? Maybe just a little trauma list or a problem list or just some areas that you wish you could flow easily more in your life. And if you have children, you know, taking a look at them, just a little observation, where are they flowing and where aren't they flowing? So I always use the traffic light. And so red light, yellow light, or green light, and just kind of identify a little bit of where those wonderful green lights are, and we want more of them. But if there's any yellow or red light issues, maybe you can really highlight them and then have a discussion about them. It doesn't mean everybody has to go to therapy or get a life coach, but if you can't, for whatever reason, um, talk to your child or they're not talking at all, uh, and it feels like a red flag issue, it's really okay to offer them therapy. It's really okay to say, let's get a neighbor or a family friend or even a teacher, someone just open up support yeah. and discussion. That's a little journaling for you. 
like yeah. turn into I, a book. Yeah, but. no, I was thinking parent, um, in what you were saying, like a parent or caretaker can could also journal about just kind of a little inventory of what's been happening, what they know about their kid, what they're curious about their kid. Um, even if you're not going to get those answers, at least you're sort of thinking about how your child's behavior has changed and, and, Mm -hmm. and what you know and what you don't know and what you might want to know. And a lot of parents don't know what red flag issues are, red light issues. Feel free to, you know, consult with a therapist or Google online, except Googling can get you into trouble sometimes. Too much information. Oh, yeah. it's way too much. And then before yeah. you know it, you're going to call Reach a psychiatrist. Jeremy. Yes, yeah, please. And, well, I also think, in, and to a certain extent, people might have different criteria for red light or yellow light, you totally. know, and I think it's hard because that can get gray and, you know. Cultural components cultural and socioeconomic. Yep. Yeah, there's lots. Religious. But, but just, you know, and I think being honest with ourselves, like, where's my teen struggling, mm-hmm. you know? And it's hard to admit that my child is struggling because you feel like it's your fault or you failed them or you've made a mistake. And that's just not how it is, you well, know? And sometimes we have to look back at our own experience as young people. And that's also something that they could journal about in their dream journal is about your own experience and your own challenges as a teenager. And a that's why, because it's a parallel well, process. Well, right? when yeah. I talk to families doing admissions, like almost every call, like, I can relate to something that the family's describing with something that I went through. Whether it's a male or female or what, like, it almost does not matter the circumstances because it's the dynamics that are the same. Like, the internal, the feelings, the... You're normalizing it and validating it's okay to talk about it. And and, and relating because we've all been through something difficult. Like, yes, some of us more severe and maybe severe traumas, but we've... Life's hard for everyone, you know? And I think no matter what we try and, you know, a lot of times we try and put this image up like, oh, no, everything's great. My life's great. And it's like, your life can be great and you can still have gone through difficult things. Yeah, your life can be great and there can still be things that you're still not great at. Yeah, working on. Yeah. Quick question, last question. Where is your support system? How do you you take care of you, your self-care? You're there in the trenches helping families and teens. You're definitely, you know, uh, consulting with me 20, I would say, you know, (laughs) three three days out of the week or whatever. I think part of it is just like being honest and checking in with myself and acknowledging like when I'm, when my anxiety is spiking and, you know, as as a new business owner and as, you know, I've, a lot of young staff that I, you know, want to support and care about and want to do well, like seeing when, when am I spiraling? Like when is my anxiety kicking in, you know, having people in my life to talk to, whether therapists, my wife, colleagues that I trust that I can reach out to for support. I mean, even Wendy, I know we've, I've reached out at times when I've needed to talk about like having people that you can bounce things off of and trust and, you know, that you feel comfortable with. Part of that is, you know, doing I used to play a lot of softball. I used to be really physically active. And I think that's something that I've struggled with lately because time is, you know, time and energy is, is valuable. Um, but just finding, you know, prioritizing things, yeah. you know. Self-care. And self-care. And, and for everyone it's different. But um, I think there's always got to be like the emotional self-care and then some physical self-care. And You have some dogs too, I got a couple dogs. They keep Aww. me nice and busy. Yay, um, therapy. Yeah, yeah. But just checking in with myself, you yeah. know, and, and realizing, like, what am I doing well? What am I struggling? And, you know, what might be leading to one or the other? Yep. That's but it's an ongoing process for everyone. Like, no one's got it down. Right. You know, and it's yes. constantly evolving. And it's um, work. You know, a hard. lot of people think, oh, you should just be happier. You should just know how to take care of yourself. It's work. It's a lot of work. Yes. And, and back to generational things is 
the, we're living in different times, all of us, than we grew up in. And so things change in terms of what we expect of the world. And yeah. we can, we we've somehow come to expect it to be easy. And I don't know why. I don't think it's ever been easy. It's easier than it was for the homesteaders. That's totally for sure. Or for the pilgrims or, for, you know, <laughs> or all the of these here. things. Right. Um, but there are lots of other uh, baked in struggles that uh, we hope to normalize. So Jeremy, uh, where can they find yeah, where you? Where can people find you? Uh, Pacific Teen Treatment is the name of the program. The website, PacificTeenTreatment.com. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, the same handles. Um, the number on the website rings to my cell phone. I'm happy to talk, you know, to families at any time. Can you give that issues. number? Yeah, Please. it's uh, it's 800-531-5769. And, um, you know, again, I'm happy to talk. I, I encourage families to call, even if they're maybe not needing residential yet. Like, I work with a lot of families that don't know what they're needing, um, but they know they need to get some input on, on what might be helpful. And, you know, I pride myself on always taking the time, talking to people, doing what I can to point them in the right direction, whether that's my program, another program, an outpatient, like whatever they need, it's about trying to support them and, and pointing people in the right direction. So, you know, I'm happy to talk um, to anyone anytime about these things. I always tell people right off the bat, like, I want to help you find yeah. the right person for you, and it may not be me. Uh, so we're all open to questions. So reach out to Jeremy if you've got questions on whether uh, you may be witnessing some real red flags and it might be time. So Wendy and I, our contact information, you can find me, Jenny, with an I, uh, on Twitter at Jenny J.V. Wilson. I'm on Instagram at The Preppy Rebel. Email is jenniferjvwilson at gmail.com. And my website is www.jennyjvwilson.com. And again, that's Jenny with an I. And both Wendy and I are on Facebook. Uh, and you can find Dr. Wendy on her YouTube channel. And also... And Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, I am Dr. Wendy. My email, drwendyoconnor at gmail.com. And my website, www.doctorwendyoconnor.com. So thanks for listening, everybody. Please send us any questions, comments, topic suggestions. You can subscribe. Please subscribe. Toss us some stars. Leave us a review. And until next time, as I always say, be as authentically yourself as you can possibly stand. And stay open. Thank you. Yay. Thank you, Jeremy. Oh, thank you so <laughs> much. Yeah, I can't tell you how.
this is a way that a parent can sit at home and not like, you know, feel exposed.